What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Anson Linder. This is a weekend live stream. Man, I, I don't think I've ever done a weekend live stream. I didn't get my free form Friday in, so I wanted to do a show on the weekend, and we'll see how this goes. If you're new to my content, pretty much the longest running Bitcoin macro show um, started back in 2016. And I have a lot of correct calls to my name here. Uh, I don't do a lot of interviews on my show or really any interviews. We do interviews sometimes on FedWatch, but not for a while. And mostly we talk about macro. We talk about Bitcoin. We talk about all of these things. Um, and like today, we react to stuff. So today, what I want to do is one of the listeners sent in, um, well, asked a question on Twitter DMs. And so in there, he was asking about my deflationary thesis, if I've ever, um, or what do I think about other macro commentators in the space, and asked me about Keith Weiner, and I never have heard of him. And so then he's like, oh, he did a, a debate with Pierre Rochard a while back, uh, you know, gold versus Bitcoin. And he's somewhat a deflation or has a somewhat of a deflation narrative like myself. And so I'd never heard of him, found this debate, listened to it, and I wanted to react. I mean, I think that Pierre Richard did an exceptional job. He is a gem for the Bitcoin space, extremely, extremely valuable person to have in Bitcoin. Um, so he did a great job. We'll, we'll listen to his comments too, or his rebuttal, uh, whatever, during this debate. But uh, the main thing I wanted to respond to is Keith Weiner and his anti-Bitcoin comments, um, pro-gold comments, uh, from my unique deflationary perspective. Uh, so that's what we have on deck today. What you're seeing here is BitcoinandMarkets.com. You can sign up for the free membership and get my weekly newsletter. It goes out every Monday. I also have paid memberships to help support my content financially and help to make this a sustainable full-time thing. Uh, we'll see if I can ever get there, but uh, love doing the show. Love the community over on Telegram. Uh, check it out at t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Guys cutting it up in there all of the time. So uh, super appreciate that kind of uh, uh, quiet from the storm, if you will. It's like-minded people. There, there's a few things people disagree with, and there's a few people that are more outspoken than other people, but it's a good place to uh, have a little bit smaller community, not like a big Twitter, uh, you know, global community. It's a small community just for my content. But yeah, I love Telegram, as you can tell. Uh, T.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Okay, let's go to, should we check the price? Should we check the price before we go into this? Because price is everything. Um, so here we go. Sharon on the screen, the price chart. It's up a little bit green on the day. We'll see if we can break out here. It's 27,266. I'm going to hide some of these things here. Um, if we can break above this line let me bring the 50-day moving average up think 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 where are you where are you where are you where are you okay there we go 
So if we can get above the 50-day moving average, which is sitting at 28,200, and this red um, diagonal downward trend, uh, if we can break up above that to 28,500, then I will consider this a new breakout, and we'll see where the new highs are. Um, one of the things I talk about all the time is when we have resistance like this, that's usually quite strong. Um, and you can see that, uh, well, the resistance up here in this red zone is this recent top. There's a couple other pieces of resistance. If we go back and zoom out, let me go to the weekly. You can see where that resistance is coming from for that red bar. It's coming all the way back from the end of 2020 into 2021. And even in 2022, we had a pause in this zone at about 30,000. And that's right where we found our resistance. Now, if we can keep chipping away at that, because there will be bids and things at these important levels. And if the more times you hit an important level, the more you chew through those orders on the exchanges and the more likely you are to break through. So if we can, we found support once again here, as you can see on the 200 week moving average, and we might be able to break up, test that 30,000 once again, and we will have a better chance of breaking through this time. My ultimate targets are, have been the same for a while. Uh, my targets are pretty much focused around the end of Q3 because I think that is seasonality. Uh, with seasonality, there's going to be a lot more volatility around the end of Q3 this year. So my, my target is for the end of Q3. And uh, if you want to know what that is, got to join the Market Pro tier. So Premium Market Pro at BitcoinAndMarkets.com. I do my premium newsletter. Okay, um, let's get back into what we what we came here for. And that is Reason Magazine hosting the Soho Forum debate, Keith Weiner versus Pierre Richard. And we'll listen to this resolution, what the resolution is that they're debating over. And then I have some comments on that. So let's go ahead, make sure everything is lined up. If you're listening on Telegram, guys, uh, this should come through the audio. And you're seeing Inception right now because I had to share a window so that, and I didn't want to share like the back end of the browser that I'm in. So I, I just am sharing this screen and it's kind of like Inception, but uh, you'll be able to hear the audio come through. I'm pretty sure. So, Okay. Let's go and start this up. Without any further ado, I want to remind you of the uh, resolution. Gold, gold will remain an important form of money in the 21st century. Please vote initially, yes, no, or undecided on the resolution. Here to defend the resolution, Keith Weiner. Keith, please come to the stage. Okay, initially here, the resolution, will gold be an important currency at the end of the century? I don't like that they use the word important. What does that mean exactly? It's subjective. I actually might take the affirmative here. I don't think that gold is going away. What, what exactly is important? I mean, some people, we still use barter right? Like if a friend does 
a favor for you, you pay them in a six pack of beer or something. Um, so there, there's barter all over, or you let me use your ladder. I need, I need the ladder for something and my neighbor has a ladder. So I'm going to borrow a ladder from them. And then I'm going, my wife will bake them a, a dozen cookies or something. I don't know, but there, there's barter going on everywhere. Uh, there's people using silver. I mean, I haven't seen this in many years, but uh, when I was a gold bug, people would walk around with silver. You know, I know people that walk around with silver coins in their pocket because they tried to use silver for everything. Um, so what does an important money mean? An another thing I, I would say to this too is, is Latin an important language? I mean, nobody speaks it on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, it's used right in some Catholic churches, I think still still use it but it's it's not like used anywhere but it's still very important so what is th this resolution is very poorly worded um important money but okay let's get on with this as you can see i'm going to be stopping a lot i'm going to be talking a lot so um we'll see how long this live stream takes me okay let's go Taking taking the negative on the resolution, uh, Pierre Rochard. Pierre, please come to the stage. Yay, Pierre. <laughs> Boss. Okay, I hope you've all voted yes, no, or undecided on the resolution. Connor, please close the voting. Keith, you have 15 minutes to defend the resolution. Take it away, Keith. While everybody is panicking and selling oh, their crypto, Hold me on, and many of my friends, students, and private clients are making. Okay, here we go. If this debate were about which asset is better at skyrocketing, also crashing, then I would shake my opponent's hand, concede, and walk off the stage because Bitcoin is obviously superior at skyrocketing and also crashing puke i mean what what a simplistic simpleton argument to start off with maybe he's thinking that this is his audience that he's preaching to but um just such a horrible thing and that wouldn't even concede the resolution because well i guess he said if the resolution was is bitcoin better at pumping yeah of course because that is a completely different thing, but um, we're talking about what he, <laughs> he's also trying to say that pumpability, pumpamentals of Bitcoin is a negative. I don't know how he gets there, but let's listen. However, that is not the debate. The debate is gold will remain money, remain an important form of money in the 21st century. Ladies and gentlemen, our esteemed moderator, Gene Epstein, my honored opponent, Pierre Richard. In a way, this debate is a bit unfair because gold has been doing what it does for 5,000 years. And the proposition is that it's gonna continue doing for the next 100 years what it's been doing for 5,000 years. And okay, this is not correct. Um, it's they you often hear this, and Pierre Richard later on he actually tries to correct this by moving it to 3,000 years because it definitely has not been a major money for 5,000 years, guaranteed. It was a form of money 
but it wasn't even the most important form of money. You know, you can go back to Sumerian tablets. Um, I mean, the first ever gold jewelry is very old. They, they dug some up in Siberia, I think. Um, gold rings or something like that, um, or spirals. So it's been it, it's been a long term uh, form of money, but it has not been the form of money, the most important form of money for 5,000 years. No way. It started just being coined like in a, what was it? 650 or 500 BC roughly. And the first coins were not gold. Okay. The first coins were electrum, which is an alloy between gold and silver. The silver coins were much more popular. Um, Copper was used. Iron was used. Ingots of all of these metals were used. So it's not 5,000 years. This is uh, totally a non sequitur because it it's absolutely not true. Um, what else do I have? I have some notes here. I'm just looking at these. Okay. So that's what I would say. And even at 500 BC, gold was not the main money. Um, you know, the drachma the silver drachma was the main money uh, the silver denarius was the main money in rome then they created the solidus that was a gold coin but that might have been just used for large value transactions and not for everyday use it was i would say an important currency but it was not nearly used like it was back in the year 1900 you know when there was the classic gold standard so he wants you to think that the world has been on a classic gold standard for 5,000 years, which is not at all the case. So it, it, once, once you start piecing or tearing that down or picking that apart, it's very easy to think that gold could go back to less important role. Will it still be important? Probably, just like Latin is still an important language, even though no one speaks it anymore. So the, the resolution is kind of... Um, wrong but i anyway i just want to point that out and let's keep going on this i have a ton more to say in a certain sense good luck to debunking that or arguing against that but um there's a lot more to be said obviously about money and excuse me uh and and how all this works so we live in a system where we have a failing dollar. I don't think that's very controversial in this audience. Some audiences I speak to, you say that people are like, what, what? And then the, the room breaks into pandemonium. But the dollar is designed, this is a feature, not a bug. I'll keep referring to this concept of feature, not a bug. The dollar is designed to go down. The Fed on its website says 2% per year, which they define as price stability. Okay, so this is also wrong. <laughs> um, the dollar is failing, he said. What? That's another subjective term. Uh, when I first listened to this, I was like, yeah, it is. But I mean, it's kind of like um, the, my first thought was an orbiting body, right? It's constantly falling but it's not like losing altitude, right? It's, it's going, it's falling around the globe or the object, the planet. Um, 
so yeah, you can have a constantly falling or failing thing, and it doesn't mean that it's getting worse. Okay. Another thing he said that it, the dollar is designed to do to lose value. Designed by whom? He he says he thinks it's the Fed. All right, but that's not the case. The Fed did not design the current dollar. They are flailing in the wind just like everybody else. Now their two percent number. Um, you know, if it were designed to be 2%, why isn't it 2%? You know, they undershot for uh, 12 years after the great financial crisis, and then they majorly overshot. Like, has there ever been a single month where the year-over-year inflation or even the annualized month-to-month inflation would have been exactly 2%? No. So just because they say that on the website doesn't mean that they designed it or that the dollar was designed to be that way. It wasn't designed by anybody. It just happened that way. Um, what else do I have to say about this? So they, they just picked a number, 2%, to one, give the market something to set expectations around. and. Uh, two, because that's kind of what it would has been naturally, roughly 2%. You know, if they set a goal at 5% and it was 1%, people would laugh and say, they're not even in a chart. They're not even charged this. But if they set it at 2% and it s- sticks around 1.5%, you know, they're close. And people can still believe in this false notion that the Fed designed and the Fed controls and the Fed does, they're omnipotent. So the Fed is not in control. It's not designed by anybody. It's the dollar is not really failing. And uh, what I'll add to that also is not mentioned in any of these debates is the dollar has changed so much multiple times. It's been, you know, denominated in silver and gold and different gold uh, taken off of any backing. What's to say that they just can't reback it with with a commodity? That's exactly what I think is going to happen. So the dollar is not going to fail, people. It can be rebacked. That's what happens all the time. All right, let's continue. I wonder what Orwell would be saying about that. So the dollar is designed to go down at a steady rate. Why? As a as a free boon to borrowers. If you okay. <laughs> See, that's this is the problem when you go down this rabbit hole thinking that the Fed is omnipotent because then you have to rationalize why is, why would they do this? And it makes you think false things, you know, reach false conclusions about their motives or about the way the system actually works or or whatever, because you think it's designed and the Fed is omnipotent and they're doing this for a reason. No, the, the thing is, the Fed is floating just like we all are. They are trying to look competent so that they can somewhat set ex- future expectations. That's it. So it's not, it's not designed to be a boon to borrowers. It is, I mean, in a certain sense. Um, because it's credit-based money. 
and credit has to either expand or collapse. But it's not designed by anybody for anything in particular, right? It's just the way the market has evolved. This, the dollar, the current dollar evolved. All right, um, let's keep going here. You borrow money and then the dollar is going down, then what you owe the return of is falling in value. The longer the term of the loan, the greater the fall, the easier the burden on the debtors. And that is how the system, if I can use the word rigged, is rigged. Unfortunately. Okay, rigged. Again, another term. Uh, nothing, life isn't fair. Um, I think he touches on that again a little bit later, but uh, nothing is fair, okay? And just because the market goes against you, you know, like that's another thing. <laughs> you start thinking that the market is purposely rigged because you think it's designed and controlled and operated and managed by the Fed. So they have to be actually manipulating this against your own self-interest, but that's not the case, okay? This life isn't fair. The world works the way it works. You know, nature is, it's not nice. <laughs> nature is not nice. So, uh, yeah, you could say that nature is rigged against the, um, you know, certain animals that go extinct or nature is rigged against um, an antelope when the lion eats it or something. But no, it, it, that's just the way the world is. It's not rigged. That's the way it works. So um, let's, do I have anything else on this? He contradicted himself, but let's see if we keep going on this. Fortunately, the dollar doesn't do as they would wish. Doesn't. Okay, there he did contradict himself right there. Was it's it's rigged? They control it. They designed it. All right, but it doesn't work. I mean, he contradicts himself right away. So instead of thinking that, um, instead of saying, "Oh, it doesn't work the way they want it to." I must be wrong that it's rigged. I must be wrong that the Fed is in control. He doesn't think that, you know, he, he wants to find another way that it's manipulated or why their omnipotent control is actually just partially omnipotent or whatever. You can see how this gets complex very, very quickly because you, you start from the wrong premise. doesn't do as their theory would predict. And it isn't steady or stable. It is not a simple mechanism for robbing Peter to pay Paul. Peter being the lender on the other. So every trade has two sides. And there's Peter over here who's the saver who's lending his savings to something and expecting to get that back with interest. Well, he's the one who's screwed when the dollar goes down. And then Paul over here, the borrower, is the one who wins when the dollar goes down. Unfortunately for Paul, it isn't a steady, linear, um, monotonic would be the term, uh, progression of going down. It has wicked volatility to it. And as we see right now, the dollar is going up, not down, which means the borrowers are finding that their burden of debt is increasing, not decreasing. Oops. Oops is right. So it's not designed. It's not controlled. Um, it's just the way that the system works. I mean, he contradicts himself in the first two points that he made. Um, and they don't really understand their own system. And so they're, running around worrying about inflation in one day and then you know yield curve inversion the next and the dollar index and and on and on and on with all this stuff so savers 
when they face this uncertainty, turn to the thing that they've turned to for 5,000 years, which is gold. Uh, no, they don't. <laughs> I mean, that's objectively wrong. They, they Well, one, they haven't turned to it for 5,000 years. That's silly to say that because they've turned to a lot of things over 5,000 years. You know, gold they've turned to, yes, to a degree. But what about silver? What about land? What about titles? You know, investing yourself, with, trying to get invested uh, in a title or have a title to some land. Uh, skills, education, iron. Iron was a huge money that was used. Copper, of course. Electrum, ships, sailing ships. Any sort of asset, durable asset that's an income producing asset. I mean, these are also what people saved in. So no, it's people for 5,000 years have not been turning to gold. Maybe you could say during the classic gold standard for about 100 years in there, people turn to gold. But come on. So you're going to put that 100 years of a classic gold standard against the 13 years of Bitcoin? Okay, now we're, we're talking here. Now it's a little bit more uh, comparable. Okay, I don't, what I said here in my notes is I don't think there's been a single year where people didn't save in anything else and only saved in gold. So his 5,000 years, people have turned to gold for 5,000 years. There hasn't been a single year that they haven't turned to other things as well. You know, it's kind of a silly argument to say, but all right, let's keep going. Now, gold does not pay a return. Now, my company, Monetary Metals, that's actually what we do is we pay investors a return. That proposition is growing. We're hiring. All kinds of good things are happening. I'm not really here to talk about my company, but generally gold is not expected to pay a return. And the trade-off for that is it doesn't have a risk. It's the thing you have when you don't want to uh, invest or speculate and take a risk. People turn to that, but if they want to get a return, that's wrong. Uh, I didn't even catch this the first time through. It, that's wrong because unless you you have to self custody it, right? It's only not a risk. Well, there, there's still even if you hold it, there's still a risk that your the gold that you hold in your house could be stolen. You know, the the. You could 6102 it. The government could confiscate it. You could bury it in the ground, but maybe there's a sinkhole and and it takes your gold down to 10,000 feet or something. Who knows? You don't know. There is still a risk. And what Pierre says is, well, first he clarifies that and saying that this is uncertainty, not risk. Uh, But that there... Bitcoin has less uncertainty than gold in this respect, which is a very good point. Okay, let's keep going. Then they have to go to the market. And unfortunately, part of the defect in the dollar is that the yield, the interest rate available to especially retail savers and investors has been taken away. They waged a war on interest. And unlike all the other wars on, this one they've actually won. It's all over but the shouting. The Fed is now still in the throes of pretending that it can raise interest rates, but in their uh, so far early uh, stages of attempting to do that, 
all sorts of problems are coming out and they're going to be forced to reverse as they were in 2015, as they were in 2007, you know, all over again. Because they're in control, because they're omnipotent, because they designed the system and it works for you. It's rigged. So it's rigged. That's why they can't do it right. That's why they have to pivot all the time. That's why they're always late. You know, that's why they never see a recession coming because it's rigged by these omnipotent central planners. It's, it's a, I mean, the dissonance you have to have in your head to believe that is, I mean, I believed it for a long time. Probably, let's see. I mean, I believed that probably for 10 years of my adult life. I was a gold bug. Then I found Bitcoin. And even in Bitcoin, I believed that for a long part of it. So I would say 15 years, I believed in this dissonance. But once you see it for what it is, that if the system is rigged, if it's designed, if the central planners are omnipotent and they can control the interest rates, why are they always wrong? Why are they always behind? Why don't they ever see a recession coming? Why can't they ever get 2%? They undershoot, then they overshoot. Well, if it's rigged and designed by these omnipotent people, they should be able to do it. The fact is they don't. They are riding the same waves that we are. All right, so that is destroying his, um, uh, this first part. So people are turned, if they want a, a yield and they can't get a yield by financing productive enterprise, then they're forced to turn to a surrogate for yield, which is speculation. So you have to go into the Fed's casino and you have to put your chips down and you can bet on stocks, you can bet on real estate, you can bet on fiat currencies. You know, there's there's a bookie taking orders on everything from Turkish lira to euros and everything in between. Uh, you can bet on uh, obviously bonds. You can even bet on Bitcoin. And folks, that is, dare I say, the shabby little secret with all due respect of Bitcoin, its purpose is to be a chip in the Fed's casino for betting to make more dollars. That's what it. I mean, all of this can still be applied to gold too. But what I want to say specifically about this, he says that um, if they want to preserve their purchasing power, they have to go into the market for a return. He contrasts this with financing a business versus speculation. Uh, but actually, that's the same thing. All right. So if you take out a loan to finance your business, you're uh, you're speculating about the future of that, right? You can't necessarily lock in returns in that way. If you lend to somebody, you think that you have this fixed rate uh, loan that you're going to get a return of five percent. But what if it was a subprime mortgage? You know, what if what if this they default on you? That's part of the reason. Why there's the five percent? Uh, the, the other reason is time preference. Uh, so, the, the the risk is still there. It's, Pierre makes this point. He says that speculation is an entrepreneurial activity, and that's what this investing in your business would be. Right? It's all entrepreneurial speculation. And so, these things are the exact same thing. And then he says that uh, it's Bitcoin is a chip in the Fed's casino for betting to make more dollars. Um, what do I have here on my notes? Uh, 
Okay, so the, this is the Fed's casino. Again, the omnipotent central planner. The Fed, this is not the Fed's casino. The Fed is not in control. If this is a casino, the Fed is just a party. You know, maybe they're the dealer or something. It's not the Fed's casino. They're along for the same game of chance, the same ride that you are. Um, okay, then what do I say? All money is speculation. Pierre talks about this. It's all about uncertainty. He also says something like income is consumed. Of course, that is incorrect. Um, financialized everything. Now, I do kind of agree with this. All right. That there, he gave the example of like Ferraris and art and, and you know, all of these things gain some, oh, I hit my mic, sorry, gain some monetary premium in the system. I, I do agree with that. Um, but that's not because of the Fed. It's because the form of the money is credit-based money at the end of a credit cycle, and there's a deflationary pressure, right? And it's that that manifests itself or can also be said as a monetary shortage. The debt burden outweighs the return on investment. And so you're trying, the, the market naturally, the human animal naturally tries to monetize other things. Jeff Schneider has talked about this, you know, the, during a monetary shortage, you get monetary alternatives springing up. And that is where this monetary premium and financialization comes from. It comes from a, um, how do I say, a societal move towards trying to find monetary value in other things. Now, this is different than inflation, guys. This actually, when I was thinking about this earlier, that this was like, wow, this actually explains the difference because that's different than an inflationary financialization. Okay, so when during a high period of, of inflation, people will take that cash and they'll try to buy durable goods with it. Okay, so they're, they're trying to preserve their purchasing power through the actual value of the things that they're buying. So that is not a financialization. That's not a trying to bet on the price appreciation and the creation of monetary value in another instrument. This is uh, an inflationary degradation is more of a just a flight to durable goods. And uh, in a deflationary pressure or deflationary degradation, it's actually a flight towards monetary premium. Trying to find that value, trying to hit the lottery on something, trying to speculate out there. In an inflationary environment, you don't speculate. You know that I'm going to buy this toaster or whatever, some durable good, because it will hold its value. I'm not speculating on that. Well, I mean, I guess it is kind of speculation because everything's speculation. But I mean, I'm not betting that the thing will gain value. I'm, I'm betting that the, the thing will keep its value relative to the currency. And that's not what's happening here with the financialization from a deflationary pressure. I hope that makes sense because that I think that is pretty profound and uh, explains, it's like almost irrefutable at this point that that is a deflationary 
type of uh, circumstance versus an inflationary type of circumstance. So um, what else do I say here in my notes? Uh, okay, we were kind of close to this in 2008 or 2007, maybe, you know, with real estate, um, people thinking, oh, the real estate has never gone down year over year. It will always continue to go up. You can see that kind of mindset where it's an inflationary mindset that this thing is um, relative to dollars. It's always going up in value, but we don't have that mindset anymore. I mean, just look at the headlines. People are thinking we're in a major real estate bubble. Yes, that we have commercial real estate crashing, but we had residential real estate crashing in the 2008 financial crisis. Then even now people are thinking that these aren't going to go up forever, right? So there has to be, um, uh, so that is not an inflationary mindset. So that inflationary stuff has not set in. That would be the one place I would say that it does or has gotten close to setting in to inflationary or being describable as an inflationary mindset. Uh, but overall, all of this stuff is a deflationary degradation. That's what happens. People search and speculate for monetary premium out there. Okay. What else do I say in my notes? That's it. Let's go. It does. That's what all these other things are increasingly perverted into doing. Equities have become that. Real estate has become that. Um, old artwork, old antique Ferraris, whiskey, wine. Oh, there you he says it. Everything has been financialized and turned into a bet uh, in the casino. So let's look at Bitcoin now for a moment. Bitcoin is uh, skyrocketing. Well, not at the moment. Today it was down a few percent, uh, but generally skyrocketing. It has been uh, in quite a, a bull market. And that's not a bug. It's a feature. Yep. It is planned. So just as the dollar is planned to go down, Bitcoin's planned to go up. Sounds like a good deal, right? Buy this thing that's going up. That's kind of correct, actually. Um, but Bitcoin isn't planned, or uh, sorry, the dollar isn't planned to go down. That is na naturally how it has evolved. So people that are new to my content, um, the dollar evolved this way naturally because at the end of World War II, there was a lot of new technology, and then especially with the new uh, internet revolution, you know, a telecommunication revolution, I should say, and computing revolution, there was a lot of uh, ability to use credit for productive purposes, you know, to get a high growth rate. But once we have saturated that technology, once we have saturated the credit market, now, you know, how, what do they say? For every dollar, it takes $2 of debt for the government to get $1 more of GDP. And it keeps going down. It keeps, you know, getting worse and worse. So the productivity of credit-based money was highly, uh, it was explosive back in the middle of the 20th century. And that's one reason why we went off the gold standard because, money was just expanding like crazy. It wasn't just expanding in the US. I mean, dollars were being printed all around the world. So you could make a loan in Frankfurt, Germany, that denominated in dollars, and you had you 
printed dollars in Germany. And then what would they do? They would try to repatriate gold from the United States or, you know, or um, redeem it for gold for, from the United States. So they were just printing money anywhere in the world and trying to uh, turn it into gold. Uh, and so the, the U.S. had to stop that. Right. That's just a natural evolution of this. Um, so anyway, uh, the highly elastic form of money was very good for business. It was very good for growth. We grew more in the second half of the 20th century than pretty much the way more than the entire rest of humanity combined, right? Because of this highly elastic credit and technology revolution that we had. But now we're at the end of that. We're at the end of that and that, and the money will evolve away again. It will it will evolve back to something more sound because when you have a credit crisis, you're trying to flee to uh assets that don't have any counterparty risk you know and that's why gold will get a, get a bid and that's why bitcoin will get a bid but of course bitcoin has much more explosive pumpamentals than gold has so uh yeah that's what i would say who's on the other side of the trade and the dollar the going down benefits the borrower and the and bitcoin the going up benefits the uh they're not really savers we'll call them hodlers who's on the other side of the trade well that's the problem in Bitcoin, there is no creative or productive thing generated by Bitcoin. The only way that anybody makes any money is by selling their Bitcoin to fresh new money coming in. So I buy Bitcoin, I give my money away to this gentleman here. My money's gone. I don't get my money back. It is not a conversion of my dollars to Bitcoin. It is a trade. I give him my dollars. I get his Bitcoin. He's out. I'm hoping that it's going to go up. So far, Bitcoin's been in one hell of a bull market. Eventually, if you wait long enough, it does go up. Maybe. We'll see this time. May or may not be different. And then I sell to this gentleman over here. I don't get my dollars back. It's not a return of my capital. It's this gentleman giving me his capital, which converts to my income to be consumed. So it is a vehicle for conversion of one party's capital to another party's income to be consumed. Nobody wants to be a prodigal son, but speculation, and it isn't just Bitcoin. I mean, it's stocks, it's properties, it's whiskeys, it's everything, have become vehicles to make a prodigal society. No. <laughs> I don't know where to where to start. Like, he, I had my order mixed up. That, that's where he said that it's consumed. The income is consumed. Money is not consumed. Um, that's part of the deal. You know, money is... Um, it's an asset that carries value into the future. You don't actually consume it when you use it. You send it, just give it to somebody else, right? So is there any asset that wouldn't fit into his little series of uh, transactions there? I don't think so. But, uh, you know, he's saying that, okay, it's, it's all just a fixed pie world. It's just money sloshing around. But no, that's not the case, okay? Value is created in the minds of men. Value is subjective. So here's an example. Um, I have an apple to sell you. And the guy, a guy comes up to me. He's like, I'll, I'll give you a dollar for that apple. I say, no, 
He says, I'll have about two. I say, no, I'll take three. Like that price, that value was not created in any transaction. It was created in my mind, the, the value that, that that has. Value is completely subjective. So I don't even, he doesn't even understand money in the first part or pricing. It's just, uh, let's see what I say. Just looking at my notes here. All right, let's keep going because I think he has something else coming up here. We don't want to spend our own life savings down or our family legacy down. We're spending somebody else's through the magic of uh, what we feel is a market. But it's a rigged game and everybody is forced to be there because the Fed has taken away yield. Everybody needs yield. You can't get yield one way. You turn to the surrogate, which is speculation. Okay. That's incorrect. Like I have already stated, Um, you know, the Fed has taken away um, interest rates uh, or yield. That's not the case. That's an interest rate fallacy is actually as money becomes tighter because returns on credit decrease you know, the diminishing marginal revenue product of debt, then lenders will be less likely to lend and borrowers will be less likely to borrow because they don't have any way, they don't see any way to repay principal and interest. That's why interest rates go down because you're narrowing the pool of potential borrowers it's actually tightening of money. Credit standards tighten and demand goes down. So you narrow the window of where the new credit is going. That's why interest rates fall. So no, the Fed did not take this away. This game is not rigged in that way. I mean, yeah, it's rigged as in life's not fair, but it's not rigged by the Fed. And again, the searching for yield by investing in these things is people searching for a monetary premium in a monetary shortage. Trying to make some monetary premium happen. Okay. Uh, what else do I have written here? Okay. Price. It's true that price is set on the margin. Like he said there. Um, but Value is not set on the margin. Like I said, value comes from the minds of men. Price is just, uh, he's conflating price and value. Um, so, all right, let's keep going because I think he has something else to say here. So Bitcoin is a zero-sum uh, game. Mm. Um, and it's actually negative sum game because it costs a lot of money to run the Bitcoin network. I'm not an expert in this, but I've read a number that's something like tens of millions of dollars per day. The only source of funds to the folks who run the network are the, the new money coming in from new buyers. Okay, this is, <laughs> this is wrong on uh, so many ways. Okay, so zero sum game. No, voluntary markets... are mutually beneficial, right? Voluntary exchange 
is mutually beneficial by definition. This is what Mises and the Mises Institute, what they preach all the time is voluntary exchange is mutually beneficial. It's not a zero sum game. So even if he was correct in his little arbitrary series of transactions that he said there, there is utility gained because it's a voluntary transaction. Okay. So it literally cannot be a zero sum game. So he might, he might respond to that and say, oh, the Fed forces us to do this, maybe because they uh, change the rules or whatever uh, from time to time. But that's not the same as literally forcing a transaction to take place. All right. As long as you have some control, some choice over your transactions. Nobody's forcing people to buy Bitcoin. No one's forcing people to buy Apple stock or bonds. So as long as you have some choice, there's going to be some mutually beneficial thing happening in that trade. So it's not zero sum. It's not zero sum. Um, also, you know, again, he conflates price and value. The market price is the clearing price, not the value of a good. Um, so that's important to note. People don't spend their Bitcoin. Okay. Also, I, I thought of this when I was listening to this. So the people don't often spend their Bitcoin because the value of what you would get in return, you know, people aren't willing to value Bitcoin high enough yet. So as soon as the people are willing to value Bitcoin high enough, like let's say they could, uh, people were accepting Bitcoin at a market value of what a million dollars is today, then people would spend their Bitcoin. So you see, you can see that I think that I can buy a Bitcoin today for 27,000, but it's worth a million. Look at all that utility that I got. How do you measure that? How do you measure um, the utility that somebody gets from purchasing Bitcoin at a certain price. You can't because it's subjective. See, that's why I'm saying he's conflating price with value. We don't know how much utility they're getting out of it. Only they do. And they really don't because they it's an ordinal uh, value system. You can't put a necessarily a price on it other than saying, I would pay a million, but I can't really check that that's true. I just feel that that's true because maybe I would take 900,000. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so it's all subjective. It's all a feeling and it, it's impossible to measure the utility, but as long as it's a voluntary transaction, there's value being created there. Okay. So it's not that hard to get that part of it. Uh, but a lot of people think it's a zero sum game. I mean, that's the socialist thing is a zero sum. All right, let's continue. And so it's a system in which um, the, the system is the people that are exiting and the people that are running the network are eating the, uh, the some of the money that's coming in. And then eventually, uh, you know, what happens when you run out? So, all right, let me just mention too about the minor aspect of it about supporting the miners. Um, he says the only source of funds for miners is new money coming in from new 
buyers. But I don't, I don't think that's the case either. It's definitely not a one-to-one function because value can be created in the minds of men, it, you know, in the market. So um, not necessarily money coming in from new buyers. Now, if you want to say dollars, like they can pay, they can only pay their electricity bill by the dollars that come in to buy the Bitcoin. Yeah, I guess that would be, that would be the case. Um, but price doesn't move because new money is coming in. I think that's what he's trying to say here. Price does not move because new money is coming in. Price moves because subjective valuations go up and the clearing price or the the marginal trade is going higher because people's subjective values are going up for, for Bitcoin. So price is not going up because of new money coming in. It's going up because of subjective values. Um, I hope I made that clear. So this is my, uh, this is my one slide for today. <laughs> now, in a certain sense, you could say that's a trite tautology. Haha, <laughs> one equals one. It doesn't mean anything. Um, I've argued with many Bitcoin folks on uh, Twitter in particular, and a lot of them will say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Yep. And I, I challenge them and I say, I don't think even you believe that if I had, let's say, a successful restaurant chain that was worth 10 million Bitcoins a decade or so ago, that it's undergone a hyper collapse down to a few tens of Bitcoins now. Okay, well, what about gold? You know, gold has been under its, it just recently hit a new all-time high, but it hit 1900 and went all the way down to 1000. So, you know, it dropped by almost 50%. So would he say that that business was, the value of that business was cut in half or doubled just because gold went down? Uh, You know, the same exact arguments can be made against gold than, uh, you know, the volatility of gold versus the volatility of Bitcoin. Uh, so yeah, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. And as Bitcoin matures, which I think we'll get into here in a second, as Bitcoin matures, then it will uh, become less volatile. And not everyone buys that, but uh, we'll touch on that in just a second. I don't think anybody really believes that. You realize that it's the unit of measure that's shifting and not the value of the thing being measured. So I want to I look at this and what this means in terms of gold, because it's not just simply a tautology. I'm not just simply saying one ounce equals one ounce. Austrian economics teach. Wait, that's exactly what he's saying. Teaches us that as the quantity of a commodity increases, its utility or value at the margin decreases. I live in Phoenix. It's a very hot desert. This time of year, you could expect temperatures of 115 degrees in the shade. Uh, if you're walking around in the afternoon in the sun, you will go from per- perfectly happy to thirsting to death, uh, you know, within within an hour or so. If you come across somebody offering to sell you water, what is the price you're willing to pay for that water? For the first liter, you'd open not just your wallet, your bank account. The second, the third, by the fourth liter, you would refuse it. Everything has a utility that is diminishing at the margin. Gold is not consumed, and it's been continuously mined so far as we know, for at least 5,000 years. And in those 5,000 years, we have not reached the point where 
marginal benefit is less than marginal cost. We continue to accumulate more of it without any apparent limit. And what this is saying is that at the margin, gold's utility is not diminishing. The nth plus one ounce has the same value as the nth ounce, which is saying that gold is the closest thing we have to a economic constant. Mm, 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 mm. Okay. Now, gold definitely has diminishing marginal utility, 100%. We just haven't reached that yet, right? It's the big difference between saying uh, there's no apparent limit and that there is no limit. It's the same way we could say with the water example, he used gigantic measurements, you know, a liter, because you can quench your thirst with a liter. But what if we used teaspoon or molecule of water? The apparent, you know, diminishing marginal return would be very hard to identify, right? So no, the gold is not magic. Gold does not have uh, lack diminishing marginal returns. It's just that we're not having enough of it yet. But I'll also say that, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody would argue if gold or if the U.S. government dumped its 8,000 tons of gold on the market, that we wouldn't see diminishing marginal returns. <laughs> it's just kind of a silly argument. Or if some space aliens came and dropped, because uh, they say all gold my, ever mined is a cube that's 21 meters, you know, um, a cube 21 meters across. What if aliens came and dumped gold that was 500 meters across, a cube that was 500 meters across, you know, hyperinflating the gold supply? That Would anybody ever say that that is not going to see diminishing marginal returns? No, of course not. I also think that he's conflating the market process. He's conflating the market process for uh, the stability that the market process provides to gold for a inherent property in the gold itself. So let's keep going because he says something about that. Now compared to Bitcoin, is this true for Bitcoin? We don't know. In fact, we don't have a way to know because the central planner who designed Bitcoin was terrified that this was not true for Bitcoin and set a hard cap at 21 million units. Okay, so this is a disingenuous argument because central planning is an ongoing process, right? Central planning is an ongoing process. And so since Bitcoin is not being centrally planned today, he tries to say that Satoshi centrally planned, or he Satoshi is the central planner. But to be a central planner, you have to be ongoing in the process of central planning. You know, if there's no central planning happening, there's no central planner. I hope, it's just, it's a disingenuous argument to, to be made. So, uh, and Bitcoiners are not terrified of tail emission. Uh, it's just that it's monetary, the arguments for it are, well, it creates a vulnerability to that coin 
just like it creates, just like gold's tail emission creates a vulnerability to gold of a harder currency coming in, right? So it has to be, it has to be fixed. So the supply has to be fixed. It's not that you're terrified of it. It's that the logical arguments take you there, right? Because if there's a harder currency than Bitcoin, Bitcoin's decentralization breaks down. So you need to have fixed supply. It's like that linchpin. It's one of the linchpins that you can't take out or everything comes across or come, uh, comes falling down in the Bitcoin system. And that is actually a weakness of gold, the same way it would be a weakness for Bitcoin. So anyway, let's keep going. So we can't run a 5,000-year experiment to see what happens if Bitcoin's quantity keeps increasing. To put this in perspective, every year the miners... Well, yeah, we can kind of, right? We could do a computer simulation. It wouldn't be perfect, obviously, but we could do that. Um, and, and you can just use deductive reasoning. I mean, an experiment doesn't have to be like a real true life experiment. We can do an experiment in any sorts of ways, you know, a thought experiment. That's why it's called a thought experiment. Produce about 3,000 tons of gold which is uh, worth about $170 billion. That's over half of Bitcoin's current market cap being produced every year in gold. And yet... What a weakness. This is still true. Gold's utility at the margin is undiminished. That's incorrect, man. How are you measuring that? How are you measuring that? I mean, <laughs> it's just so, so wrong. Now, why is, why is it important to have something that's an economic constant? If you look at the firm, if you look at the enterprise, what is the single most important thing that every business owner, operator, manager needs to know? Are we creating wealth? Are we destroying wealth? And how do we measure that? If the very unit in which we measure it is either designed to go down monotonically and have some wicked volatility along the way, or something that has gigantic volatility and gyrations, we would never know whether it was the change in the unit that that restaurant went from 10 million bitcoins to 40 bitcoins in value or whether it was actually the business that went down you need something that will give you an objective picture and gold uh, is that uh, objective picture okay gold is that objective picture <laughs> gold's magic gold is a magical a magic has magical properties it's the objective picture that is perfectly tells you the market value at any moment in time of anything inherent in gold, or I guess inherent in the atom, the gold atom, is this magical property of no diminishing marginal returns ever. It's immune to all that. No, of course, that's, that's incorrect. Uh, gold is mined at a sustainable rate because the market balances diminishing margin returns with supply and demand. It's the market doing that, not gold. Gold has some properties that make it easier to do for uh, the market processes to work a certain way on that certain metal, but it's not the gold itself that's the objective picture okay it's the market process the market is creating the stability in the asset 
I also think that he is conflating supply, total supply, with circulating supply, um, which I think we'll get into here in a little bit. But that that's a stabilizing factor as well for gold is, you know, like when gold pumps, you'll usually see these kind of uh, gold dealers that will take all your old gold jewelry for cash and all this stuff. I mean, the supply, the circulating supply of monetary gold can be adjusted um, versus the total supply of gold. And he's like, oh, every ounce of gold is still held by man. No, it's not. There's, there's shipwrecks, right? There's lots of lost treasure out there from the Spanish galleons and all that. So no, that's not, that's not the case either. Um, what else? I think we're going to get, I'm going to get into the circulating supply versus total supply in the next section. Let's see. So I would just, to sum up that part, no, gold isn't magic. It's a market process. The market is what's providing the objective picture through gold, through the money. Um, it can do that through Bitcoin the same way. It's just that gold is more monetized than Bitcoin is. We were talking on the server about the um, if gold is going to be demonetized anytime soon because of this, you know, by the year 2100. And I don't think it will be completely. Some people were saying that it will be completely demonetized by then. Um, but I don't think it will completely lose its monetary premium, but it will lose a lot of it, maybe like 99% or something. Um, but I don't think it will ever be completely demonetized. <sighs> it's, it's a hard question, but um, yeah. Okay. He, the next part he is talking about the 21 million. So let's get into that. One other problem with Bitcoin, I say the word again, centrally planned is that somebody <laughs> We don't necessarily know who Satoshi is. I think we think we know at this point. Decided that 21 million was the magic right number of Bitcoins. He decided 22 million is not the magic right number and 20 million is right out. It kind of feels like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you remember the holy hand grenade of Antioch, right? Well, what if that's not right? He also decided that as Bitcoin approaches the 21 million, it is to approach asymptotically. What if that wasn't right? What if it should be linear? What if it should be the other way? Um, these are things that have been decided uh, by a single person or maybe a small group of people of Satoshi's group. And they constitute Bitcoin's um, central plan. And the net result. Okay. Bitcoin is not centrally planned. Like, would you say that gold is centrally planned? You know, no, of course not. Even though gold, if you believe in a creator, or even if you don't believe in a creator, let's say you believe in supernova, create gold, or however you say that. But just because it's created at some point doesn't mean that it's actively being centrally planned. You know, for a central planner, you need to have ongoing central planning. If you don't have ongoing central planning, there is no central planner. Um, yeah, so Satoshi did 
create the certain characteristics of Bitcoin, uh, but it's not arbitrary. All right. The 21 million is not arbitrary. It's a combination of block time and block time was not arbitrary either, not a hundred percent arbitrary. It could have been nine and a half minutes or 10 and a half minutes, but uh, it's not arbitrary either because they, it, it needed to be long enough for the competition to go on, the burning of energy, as well as the latency of the network to make sure everything is shared around the world and um, that kind of thing. So it's not arbitrary, 100% arbitrary. The block time is it. The halving cycle, um, this was not arbitrary either because you, depending on how fast you want to get to the end uh, of the issuance or how fast you think that uh, the adoption will happen. You know, that there's, it's not like he just picked uh, 2,000 and or 210,000 blocks out of a hat. That there, this was not arbitrary. It was thought about why it would need to be this way for the ability for multiple places to, you know, start mining or for the network effects to kick in for people to price in the having and then the effects of the having afterwards there needs to be a certain amount of time to work through the market like if you think okay it's going to take a year uh to uh, a year or two to price in the upcoming having and then about one or two years to for the effects of the having to work their way through the bitcoin economy then it would make sense about you know about 4 years so that wasn't completely arbitrary either. And the last thing is the integer problem. So in Bitcoin's code, you know, it doesn't, the block reward is not in Bitcoins, it's in Satoshis. And so the, why would you start with 50 instead of 100? You know, like you could just have a similar effect, um, but I don't know exactly how much more that would add to the supply if you did 100 for the first block reward, but it would be a lot, right? And maybe double. And the problem there is the Satoshis, the total number of Satoshis comes right up to that limit of the integers, the integer number in codes. And I have a link here. Let me go to this link. Why is Bitcoin in eight decimal places? And I'll scroll down here a little bit. So it's also worth noting that this decision means the total Bitcoin supply is approximately two to the five, uh, sorry, two to the 50.89 power. Two to the 50th power, which means it's smaller than the maximum value for a 64-bit integer, which in computer is two to the 63rd power. And smaller than the first integer that can't be exactly represented in a double precision floating point number, which is 2 to the 53rd power. So see, if, if he would have done, um, started the block reward at 100, there would have been too many Satoshis to fit into a integer in the computer. Like without, uh, it says... The standard programming languages can deal with Bitcoin amounts without requiring custom implementations or dealing with 
overflowing. So to get rid of those problems, he created it with 21 million. It was pretty much the biggest number that he could get in Satoshi's, you know, so what is that? Is that uh, 2.1 quadrillion or is, I think that's 2.1 quadrillion. I'm trying to count the zeros. Maybe it's 210 quadrillion. I don't know. It's some big number, right? And that's the most amount of Satoshi's that you could have without causing these problems in the integer of the computer languages. And you were able to have the halving cycle and you were able to do the 10 minute block time. So the, the deeper down you go, you realize that this 21 million was not arbitrary at all. It was an elegant solution to a, oh, damn, I hit my mic. Sorry guys. To a elegant solution to this problem. How do you pick the supply? Well, let's figure out this uh, to go through all of these steps that I just did. And now we're, you know, 21 million. That, that's a, pretty much the best answer. So another thing too, is he's like, why couldn't it be something different? Couldn't the solution, you know, like um, linear, have not, not a having, but it goes in a linear progression instead of a uh, exponential type fashion. Um, yeah, that's possible. Okay, that's possible. Maybe he said also backwards, like have less inflation up front and more inflation in the back. Like what makes that the right choice? And we, I mean, there's reasons for this, of course, but that's not a significant difference. You can do that if you want. You can relaunch a new Bitcoin if you would like. Um, what do I say here? Yeah, but it's not going to be much better. It might be a little bit better, but it's not significantly different in to overcome the network effects that Bitcoin is already building. You know, it has to be significantly better to lose Bitcoin, to lose its network effects to this new Bitcoin that comes out. So that's what I would say. And it's not arbitrary. It was a elegantly designed system. Uh, the deeper you go, the more you're like, holy crap, did Satoshi actually think about that? I think he did. I think he did. I think he went through all of those steps. So anyways, um, what else do I have to say? So Bitcoin's properties, Bitcoin is not being centrally planned. It has a nature and it has properties they are set just like gold's properties are set the thing is bitcoin can be built on top of and sent digitally through computers so you can build layer twos you can build layer threes you can use open dimes which i guess open dime would be a layer two because you don't need to send an open dime you can hand an open dime to somebody Right in the future, I guarantee you, open dimes will be used physically to trade with people, or something like an open dime. Um. So, yeah, that's what I'd have to say about that. Let's keep going. Is that Bitcoin cannot respond to changes in demand, except by changes in its price. About a minute and a half left. All right, thank you. Which means that with Bitcoin. 
volatility is not a bug, it's a feature. It cannot be stable. Its design is intrinsically not stable. And so and just to, to make my conclusion here, Bitcoin is a pyramid scheme. It does not generate or produce anything. Getting back to the debate proposition, I don't think there's any real debate as to whether gold continues to be for the next hundred years what it's been for the last 5,000 years. The only real questions are one, when does the dollar collapse? And two, when does Bitcoin run out of fresh new blood and fresh new money to continue to feed the pyramid? Those are the actual questions um, that everybody should be thinking about. Oh God. <laughs> uh, okay, so let me just make a few comments on that before we listen to Pierre. Pierre's comments, I have much less to say about Pierre's stuff because he's a genius and I agree with most of what he How says. How to escape the heat if you oh don't have God, an air conditioner? On. This only takes five minutes. Okay. My head, something was playing in my headphones. All right. Um, volatility is a feature, not a, uh, or sorry. Yeah, is a feature, not a bug. Um, Pierre actually later on, I don't think we're going to listen to this uh the back and forth completely we'll just listen to what pierre had his first 10 minutes or whatever that he has uh, but he does concede this later on he concedes that bitcoin is volatile uh and that is a feature not a bug and it's kind of good because you want first off i agree with pierre but you kind of need to have you know a, a very sensitive price setting currency you know or money you don't want money that has uh, is too sticky on the way it adjusts to supply and demand in certain markets or whatever. So you kind of want volatility to a degree. You can always hedge that volatility risk away a little bit, but the um, you want to have some volatility in an asset so that you can set prices. So prices give you information that you want, not too much where there's a, a excess volatility, but you want, to, I mean, it, it's kind of silly to think that you don't, you want money to have the same purchasing power for everything and all prices to be set and never change. Like that's a dumb thing. You want prices to change because you want to know information about the market. We, why have prices in the first place? you know, but, um, okay. So, uh, but I want to take a different tact than Pierre for my main comments here on this as about volatility. And that is that uh, volatility is a property is a good thing at, for a monetizing asset. You know, you want number go up. That's all that really matters. Number go up. Um, because if number constantly went down, it would never be adopted as a, as a money. So the volatility is a property of a monetary monetizing asset. As it matures, the small adjustments to the circulating supply can have a massive circulating value effect. And you'll get more stability. So this is the example. I, I hope that makes sense. Let me say it one more time, and then I'll give you an example. Uh, 
as this asset matures, small adjustments to the circulating supply can have a massive circulating value effect. And you will get more stability by just money coming in and out of hordes, right? As money comes in and out of hordes, it will have a stabilizing effect. So the example is, say Bitcoin has a market cap of 100 billion and demand rises, which makes the price rise. And he said the only, so he said the changes in demand can only be represented through changes in price. And that is incorrect because you can change it by the amount of circulating supply. That's different than the total supply, obviously. It's the amount of supply to meet demand, okay? Because the stuff in your hordes, I mean, it is meeting demand for long-term holding, but it's not meeting new demand, right? So the to meet this rise in demand uh, can be only met by circulating supply and you can increase the circulating supply. So let me get back to the example, 100 billion market cap and demand rises, making price rise. Perhaps this will pull some money out of hordes, right? Because then you can get more for your hoarded Bitcoin. So, and it pulls out 1% of the total supply, adds that to circulating supply. So let me give some better numbers here. So it's 50-50, 50% of Bitcoin is circulating and 50% is in deep cold storage. And the price goes up, maybe now 1% that of the total that was in cold storage comes into circulating supply. So now it's actually 51% of the total supply is circulating supply and 49% is in the hoard, is in hoards. <laughs> so that if the market cap is 100 billion in that case, that means there's 1 billion more circulating value to meet that new demand, you know? And so that would push down on the amount that the price is going to adjust. However, when it's a, such a small market cap of a hundred billion, that 1% change is tiny, 1 billion. That's not going to meet the demand of say $10 billion wants to, or the there's the demand rises by ten billion dollars to to buy more Bitcoin. That one billion in new circulating supply can't meet that. But what if now we say we have a hundred trillion dollar market cap? So instead of a hundred billion, a hundred trillion, and we have the same one percent change. So the the demand rises, and now we have a 1% coming out of the hordes and going into the circulating supply. So it's still 5149 at the end of this, but the amount that has changed or the value that is now out there to meet demand is $1 trillion worth of Bitcoin. So as the market cap goes up, as a asset monetizes and matures, I hope I didn't lose people on this because this is kind of silly, but um, as this asset matures and the market cap goes up, the effect of money going in and out of the hordes, going in and out of circulating supply, 
has a greater ability to stabilize the value. I hope that makes sense for people. Also, the, the higher the price, you know, like if Bitcoin is a dollar and the price goes up to $2, that's, you know, a 100% increase. $1 is a 100% increase. But if the price of Bitcoin is $100 and it goes up a dollar, then it's only a 1% increase, right? So the, the same amount of volatile, the same amount of movement is going to be less volatile as it goes up in value. <laughs> there, there's so many ways to talk about why volatility will decline as Bitcoin monetizes and gets bigger. So, all right. Um, that's that. I mean, th this, I'm a person that thinks volatility will go down. But there's some people that think volatility will go up, you know, in the fugoid cycle, that the volatility will actually increase as we go forward in time. But I, I don't buy that right now. I'll have to, I'll have to be more convinced in the fugoid cycle to believe that. But anyway, so let's see, what else do we have? Therefore, changes in demand. Okay. Uh, at the end, I just want to say to the last thing about Keith Weiner here is that, you know, when the dollar collapses, you don't hear anybody really talk about um, when the dollar is going to be backed by Bitcoin. Like that's a common, that's a common theme in gold bug circles. James Rickards have, has made a career <laughs> saying that they're going to re-monetize gold and put back the dollar or not re-monetize, but re-back the dollar with gold at a much higher uh, price in dollar terms. That same thing can happen with Bitcoin, right? So the dollar, the death of the dollar is not going to happen. The dollar is not going anywhere. The worst case scenario, I think for Bitcoiners is that they back it by gold again. And of course the best case scenario is backing it by Bitcoin. And even if they do back it by gold, it's not a, a loss. That would be a win for everybody. So anyway, okay, let's listen to a little bit of Pierre Rochard. I'm not going to have too many comments on his, but uh, let's do this here. Thank you, Keith. Um, and uh, uh, now... Um, um, he calls him Paul. Podium, uh, Paul Pierre, uh, you have 15 nah, there minutes got it. <laughs> to take the negative on the resolution. Have a chair. Okay. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you, Gene Epstein and, and Soho Forum. Um, I've attended two uh, in the audience, and this is the first one I've uh, had the honor of debating at. Um, I also want to thank the Mises Institute for hosting this and uh, for partnering with the Reason Foundation. It's very uh, ecumenical. And uh, thank uh, Jeff Dice, of course, for the invitation. And um, thank Keith for, for you know, uh, coming to join us here and having this really important conversation. Um, the Mises Institute has a very special place in my heart. Uh, I first went to Mises.org in 2005. Uh, downloaded MP3s and put them on my iPod, as one did back then. Um, 
as well as uh, when I was in college, I searched a dating website uh, with the keyword Rothbard and uh, found my now wife and we have two children. So that would just not be possible without the Mises Institute. And um, I want to, you know, uh, that's just so boss to me. <laughs> like He is the man. Especially thank the donors and the scholars and the students here. Um, you know, this this does affect people's lives and it is important work that you are all doing. Okay, so a little bit about me. Uh, I've been researching Bitcoin since 2013. I'm now the vice president of research at Bright Blockchain. It's one of the largest publicly traded Bitcoin miners. Uh, but like Keith, I'm not here to uh, shill business. Let's. Uh, oh, and here's you know my contact information um, if you want to contact me. So um, I think that the the first uh, really. Maybe this is a separate debate, but it's a debate within a debate is what is money? What's our definition of money? Um, and if you attended Professor Klein's excellent lecture on money yesterday, um, I, I, you know, my impression was that uh, she gave the consequentialist definition, which is really kind of what is the end result of the market process is that you have an asset that emerges as the most saleable, marketable liquid good. Um, and really um i think that's that's a fine definition of what money is in kind of equilibrium uh but uh as we know market processes are uh, not not in equilibrium and um if we think about from a first principles perspective of why do we hold money um i refer back to an excellent article written by hoppe um about uh the yield on money held uh, which is an article written by uh, William Hutt, whose name I see here. Um, and uh, it's really about hedging against uncertain future cash flows. So uh, we have a, a lot of uncertainty in the world. And uncertainty has a very specific definition that we would contrast with risk. Uh, uncertainty is unquantifiable. You, you don't know the possible range of outcomes. Um, whereas risk is quantifiable, uh, you, you can have actuarial models and be able to price risk, uh, whereas uncertainty is something that is uninsurable. Um, and the reason we hold money is because there are future cash flows that are uninsurable. Um, if all future cash flows were known, right, in the evenly rotating economy, then we would be able to uh, not have to hold money because we could prearrange all of our transactions so that, uh, you know, we, we always have uh, this uh, intertemporal double coincidence of wants, which is obviously completely unrealistic uh, given the world that we live in. So we have to hold money um, and it has to be if we're if we're hedging against uncertainty, I would argue that uh, the money that we have to hold has to be the least uncertain asset uh, possible, right? Available to us uh, in order to most fulfill the need, the utility of hedging against uncertainty. Um, okay, so all right, um, what just next level? You know, like listening to him versus Keith, I just think Pierre is next level. I mean, he's citing different thoughts by different people, especially being that this is a sponsored Mises event and these people would be more inclined to be Austrians than to be um, Bitcoiners, that he is appealing to the audience, which is very good. And 
let's see, what else did he say there? He said about uncertainty. And yeah, he's attacking it from this Bitcoin is better than gold. And I agree. But that is not the resolution. The resolution is that gold will not be a important money in 100 years. Very different. Very different. Again, for people that joined later, um, I said, you know, is Latin an important language, <laughs> even though it's a dead language? Yes, it is, depending on what you mean by important. So Pierre is arguing this resolution from the perspective that Bitcoin is better than gold and will steal gold's monetary premium. And I agree with that. But that doesn't mean that gold is not important or that it will stop being important. And I personally don't think it will lose 100% of its monetary value within the next 100 years. So, um, I mean, there's always a slight bit of risk. Like, what about if there is this risk of quantum computing or there is a risk of uh, SHA-256 getting broken or there is a risk of some of these other things in Bitcoin? Uh, like, the what, what's the there needs to be a hard fork in Bitcoin for something in like the year 2034 and i can't remember what it is now good lord but there there is going to have to be a hard fork to bitcoin in 2034 ish i think it has to do with a date bug but um so there's there is some uncertainty in bitcoin and that's where gold i think will keep one two three percent of its monetary premium just because of that because of that slight bit of risk that Bitcoin actually fails. But everything else will be monetized over to Bitcoin. So will gold be an important money? I think it will be. So I would have to agree with Keith in the resolution aspect of this. But Pierre is obviously putting on a masterclass here about money, about Bitcoin. And it's great. So let's listen to some more. Let's... Uh kind of dig into uncertainty uh, in a monetary system. Um, I see two places where uncertainty arises when using a money. Uh, one is when you're actually holding it, right? And uh, I, I mean that, you know, very literally of when you have money uh, on your balance sheet uh, as an asset. And then the second source of uncertainty is when you're actually transacting with it, when you're sending it or receiving it. Um, and these these two axes when we evaluate which assets minimize uncertainty on these two axes, this is a subjective evaluation, right? We're engaging in entrepreneurial activity um, and we might be wrong about which assets have more or less uncertainty. Um, and so I really see today's debate as an entrepreneurial debate rather than uh, really one about uh, theory or praxeology. Um, okay, so Let's get into, uh, well, I'll elaborate here as well, um, although I already touched on some of these topics. Um, Professor Klein had this excellent list of different qualities of money that uh, would allow it to emerge as the most saleable good. Um, and I think that uh, on each one of these qualities, uh, we should look at it through the lens of how do we minimize uncertainty, right, in all of uh, the, the, these regards. So my central contention is that uh, receiving, holding, and sending with Bitcoin has less uncertainty than with gold. And from that, I would expect that the market process would, over the coming years, 
Um, and I think that the proposition is 21st century. So we've got uh, the, the years are ticking by, but we've got, you know, 70 something years uh, remaining um, of market process before uh, we can finally decide whether Keith or I uh, was correct. Um, but that if if Bitcoin really does fundamentally have an order of magnitude less uncertainty than gold does, uh, that we would expect Bitcoin to demonetize gold. And I would argue that uh, silver has been demonetized um, already. Um, and, you know, if I really wanted to throw a bomb, I would argue that uh, the dollar has already demonetized gold. Uh, and it's only recently that, that gold has uh, reasserted its monetary premium, uh, you know, uh, in, in post 9-11 world. But that really, you know, at, at 2000, when uh, Tony Blair was selling uh, the UK's gold, that uh, maybe that was uh, peak demonetization of gold. But um, I'll let Keith pick on that thread if, if, he, if he finds it to be silly. Um, so let's look at it. Um, let's look at the uncertainty when we're receiving uh, an asset. The you know this was uh, highlighted by uh, the professor that came after Professor Klein, uh, but um, I should have I should have met Newman I believe uh, he um, pointed out the the issue with counterfeiting, um, and when we're dealing with monetary asset, it's critical that we're able to verify the authenticity of that asset, uh, that we're able to combat counterfeiting, and here I really think that um, gold has an issue of cost. It is very expensive to verify. So for guys listening and not watching, um, it, on the right of his slide here, it says assay and sonogram for gold costs about 3000 to $8,000 to manually verify the gold you receive, but it's impossible to audit the total supply. Uh, where Bitcoin, not only can you automatically verify all bitcoins but you can audit the total supply of all bitcoins now the response to this which i'm not going to show because we're going to be done out here after after this uh segment from pierre but what the response to this was keith took out a gold coin and he's like oh but i can just listen to the sound that it makes when it falls or when it clangs on something true true but that if that proxy, it's not perfect. Obviously, that would not be perfect, a perfect way to know that this is 100% all gold. Like what if it was um, this gold coin, instead of being 90%, it was 85%. That sound that it made would still be very similar. You know, the alloy I'm talking about of 85% gold. So no, you can't trust that. Plus you can't even, or you can't, do the entire supply you can't validate the entire supply you can only validate what you are holding and counterfeiting as pierre is pointing out here counterfeiting affects the entire supply so anybody counterfeiting anywhere affects you not just the coins that i can uh drop and test the sound plus another thing look at the we i'm saying this for the people that don't have the pictures here but uh, he has a picture of a, a large gold bar. Are you going to drop that and listen to the sound that it makes, Keith? Or are you going to have to take that gold, make coins out of it? You know, and so that's not even validating what Keith is saying or what uh, Pierre is saying here. So let's let's continue. Mom. 
the purity of gold. Um, and that, you know, doing an assay and doing an sonogram of your gold bars and gold coins, inconvenience aside, uh, is very expensive. Um, and it's something that you would have to do every time you receive gold, right? If uh, and um, now. Furthermore, it has another limitation, which is that uh, even when you do verify your own gold, you're not verifying everyone else's gold. So um, as it was pointed out, the counterfeiting negatively affects all gold holders, right? Not just uh, the ones that are uh, being cheated uh, by uh, receiving counterfeit gold. Um, so I would contrast this with Bitcoin, where you're able to cryptographically verify uh, the Bitcoin that you receive using what's called a Bitcoin node. Um, and in this, uh, with this software, you don't need to trust anyone. You're able to firsthand verify not only the authenticity of the Bitcoin that you are receiving, um, but the total supply of Bitcoin as well. Uh, and so this uh, really makes it an order of magnitude less uncertain uh, than gold. And it's easy. It's uh, automated software. So, uh, and it uses cryptography and uh, it's, uh, as far as we know, foolproof. There he said, as far as we know, foolproof. Well, that's that little bit that won't be demonetized of gold is as far as we know, right? That's the tiny little 1% or even a thousandth of a percent of chance that Bitcoin will fail or something, some major thing will go wrong with Bitcoin. So there's always going to be a room for a tiny little monetization in gold. All right, let's go to storage. Um, has anyone here bought a gold vault? Uh, they are very expensive if you want one that is of quality. Um, it has limitations. For one, the gold vault is in a one singular location, right? Uh, Fort Knox is in one location, um, which might seem like, um, okay, well, why is that a problem? Uh, with Bitcoin, you don't have that limitation. Uh, with Bitcoin, you can actually put uh, what are called private keys, which allow you to unlock Bitcoin. Um, you can put those private keys in any number of different locations. And uh, this is a really uh, you know, tangible advantage in terms of security. Um, Professor Klein mentioned that one of the reasons why people don't carry gold around is that it's very hard to secure gold. Um, and I was recently on vacation in France. I was, I was reading uh, about the local history and uh, there was a chapter about um, the, the problem of theft in this part of France and that uh, farmers could not leave their farms because thieves would come along, break in, and steal their gold. So the locality of gold, the physical locality of gold is a problem. Um, it's one that is uh, you know, solved by uh, the nation state, which I know that uh, you know, here we, we would frown upon, but that's the reality of the situation that we're in. Um, furthermore, one of these vaults only lasts, is rated to last 30 minutes against uh, power tools. So uh, if you are not home, and the police does not arrive within 30 minutes, they will break into the vault and they'll be able to steal the gold. I wanted to add here that the physical nature of gold actually was a benefit, you know, in the past because it was a way to have a fixed supply, at least have some sort of fiscal restraint on fractional reserve, right? Or physical constraint on fractional reserve, that physical nature was a constraint but today with bitcoin you don't need that 
And now the physical nature has turned into a weakness for gold. So let's continue. Um, which means also that if you are dead for whatever reason, right, uh, that perhaps this is a home invasion and, and the home invader, uh, you know, is a criminal and uh, murders you, uh, then they can still access your gold. Right. Uh, that's not necessarily the case with Bitcoin, because with Bitcoin, if you had memorized the passphrase and they've murdered you, uh, now they can no longer access the Bitcoin. Um, which also leads us to the final uh, point here on the gold side is uh, with regards to pleading the fifth. This is uh, relevant in the United States. I'm sure that there's different degrees of relevancy outside the United States. But in the U.S., um, you can plead the fifth in order to not give a password to the government. Right. So um, if you have your Bitcoin locked away by a passphrase, uh, the government can't force you, compel you to give up that passphrase and uh, seize your Bitcoin from you. Uh, whereas with gold, uh, all they need is a search warrant and uh, they can certainly seize, uh, you know, gold from a vault. Um, you know, that's uh, unfortunately in the Constitution. Um, OK, now on the gold <laughs> side, uh, there's uh, really easy ways to store Bitcoin. Um, you could just use your phone, right? There's lots of great uh, Bitcoin wallet apps on your phone that allow you to uh, hold your private keys there. Um, but that would not be minimizing the uncertainty, right? Because uh, phones are actually um, one of the riskier ways of holding Bitcoin. Um, the most secure known way to hold Bitcoin is to use what's called a multi-sig, which allows you in a programmatic way to say, we're going to, in order to spend these Bitcoin, you need two signatures from any three different devices, right? And these devices are generally called hardware wallets or signing devices. Um, here I've got, for example, the cold cards. Um, and, you know, this multi-sig, I, I use two or three as an example. It could be one of five or 10 of 15. Uh, there's any number of different combinations that one could have uh, in order to, again, minimize the uncertainty. Um, you can do neat things with multi-sig. You can leave private keys in different legal jurisdictions so that uh, in terms of asset protection in, in, for the government to seize your Bitcoin, uh, they would have to go through international legal process uh, to uh, seize all of uh, the private keys and be able to move the Bitcoin. Um, this cold card uh, this latest generation, as far as we know, uh, can resist uh, power tools and lasers uh, for an indefinite period of time. Uh, so the attacker would sooner accidentally destroy the private key than be able to extract it from the device, uh, just making it an order of magnitude um, better than uh, the vault. And it's, again, inaccessible if you're dead and you can plead the fifth. Uh, one of the things I want to add here that uh, Pierre didn't touch on is... The fact that this increases the cost to the government or to the attacker, whoever that attacker is, whether it's a criminal or I guess a government criminal, government corruption, uh, because, you know, they can always get to your gold. They can always get to your dollars. But and sell that in order to pay for their enforcement, right? But they can't do that with Bitcoin. That threat is that they will waste the expense of going after you and not get your Bitcoin. That's always a threat. And just that little bit of uncertainty for the attacker 
will change the fun the fundamental payoff of criminal activity in the first place. So that's one reason why Bitcoin people think Bitcoin will lead to a more peaceful world, which I think it will to a degree. Because it changes the calculation, the cost benefit analysis of the criminal. So anyway, let's continue. Okay. Um, sending gold versus sending Bitcoin. Uh, when you are sending gold, uh, you are generally recommended to use registered mail through the U.S. Postal Service. Um, and, you know, that's uh, maybe a little bit status, but uh, if you use FedEx or UPS, uh, they, they're, they're apparently much harder to work with. Um, much more expensive to ship gold, uh, it takes much longer, and uh, you're trusting the U.S. government. With Bitcoin, uh, you can send billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin uh, for very little, right? Anywhere from pennies to dollars worth of Bitcoin in transaction fees. Because um, the fee is based on your data usage. It's not based on the value that you're transacting. Uh, generally, it takes anywhere between 10 to 30 minutes uh, to move your Bitcoin around. Uh, it operates 24-7. And you don't have to trust anyone. You just have to trust your own software. You could write your own software if you want to. Plenty of software engineers have written their own uh, Bitcoin node implementations and Bitcoin wallet implementations. Uh, it's all free and open source. It's time to introduce you to the oh, new man. Patriot. Another ad. I'm obviously not on my account here. Okay, so just to kind of diagram it out, um, my, my contention is that uh, Bitcoin has an order of magnitude more certainty than gold uh, in practice. And so uh, one would expect that uh, gold will replace uh, Bitcoin. Or sorry, Bitcoin will replace gold. Uh, brain fart. Okay. Um, now, um, let's uh, now go to, well, don't I go to the rebuttal or, okay. So now it's Keith's turn. Okay, that's it. Clap. Clap for Pierre. That was very well done. Uh, he had a very hard task, though, of course, because, like I said, the resolution is not that Bitcoin will outcompete gold over the next hundred years. It's that gold will not be an important money, which is a completely subjective claim and probably correct. Like th that, gold will still be a important money in a hundred years. But anyway, so that was interesting from Pierre's perspective. He really concentrated on uncertainty and of course the price um, to secure the price to transfer the, the, uh, the price of just uh, the cost of all of these things is just so much better with Bitcoin. And yeah, so I went through all the stuff prior. So if you're catching this towards the end, guys, just rewind to the beginning. I went through Keith, Wiener's comments, and I'll just summarize them here really quick. So he said 5,000 years. He kept saying 5,000 years, 5,000 years. That was a big thing. He's like, oh, it's been around for 5,000 years. It's going to be around for another 100. And yeah, okay, that's true. <laughs> but it hasn't fulfilled the same role for 5,000 years. Um, it's changed dramatically over those times. And over that 5,000 years, he also said that in people will turn to what's held value for 5,000, what they've saved in for 5,000 years, and that is gold. But people have saved in all sorts of things, in almost an infinite um, amount of things that people have saved in, not just gold. Gold being 
uh, you know, it, to compare apples to apples, you would have to compare the classic gold standard, which lasted for what, say, not even 100 years. Wasn't it like the 1870s through the 19 through 1945 or 19, would you say 1933? I don't, I don't know exactly, but the classic gold standard didn't even last a hundred years. And so that would be more of an apples to apples to Bitcoin's 13 years. We're not talking 5,000 to 13. We're talking 60 to 13. That's what, that's apples to apples. So anyway, what else did he say? He said, um, of course, he talked about the dollar being designed, it's controlled and rigged, but somehow these central, omnipotent central planners of the dollar, the Federal Reserve, they can't control it. They've never, ever once hit their 2% target, you know, on a year-over-year basis, like exactly 2%. Even an annualized month-over-month basis, they haven't hit 2% exactly. So, no, they... This isn't designed. It isn't controlled. It isn't all these things. It's naturally evolving money. It's naturally evolving process. And just because you bet on the wrong horse, say, or you believe in the wrong horse, then somehow it's 100% rigged. But that, of course, is not the case. It is, uh, let's see, what else did he say in... I'm just trying to sum up all of his points. Savers will turn to gold. We covered that. Um, oh, financialization. He talked about financialization. And uh, so Keith Weiner talked about financialization the, 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 to, because there's no yield left, because the Fed controls everything perfectly, exactly what they want. They rig the game exactly how they want it to happen, right? That's what we're supposed to believe about the Fed that since interest rates are so low, then people had to go out and play the speculation game to try to find yield. But remember, interest rates are low because money is tight. And in a credit-based system, when money becomes tight, people start searching for monetary premium elsewhere. If there's a dollar shortage, you look for money elsewhere. And so these, these, uh, Monetary premiums start popping up in different things because there's a monetary shortage at the end of a credit bubble and money is tight. So see, if you think that way, you don't have to believe in any of this uh, conspiracy stuff or any of this intricate manipulation and control of the market. Uh, There's some sort of huge collusion going on, which collusion always breaks down. So that can't be the case. And okay, so that, oh, and also that this is the case of financialization fits perfectly with a deflationary thesis where an inflationary thesis for the dollar uh, does not because in the inflationary thesis, you try to get rid of cash and get into something that's going to hold its value where in a deflationary environment, you get this speculation. You get this trying to find where the monetary premium is going to come come up next, right? And so you're trying to find some new monetary value someplace. That's what we see today. We don't see, an, this is not an inflationary degradation. It's a deflationary degradation. Okay, what else did he, I'm just trying to sum up my thoughts here. He talked about Bitcoin. 
a course, that there's no creative or competitive thing generated by Bitcoin. But of course, in we know in voluntary transaction, there's an increase, mutually beneficial increase in utility for both parties. So that cannot be the case. It literally cannot be the case definitionally. He complained it multiple times about being a rigged game, but life is not fair. There's always going to be winners and losers. Uh, then he tried to say that there is no diminishing marginal utility for gold as if it has a magic property. And I said, no, that's not the case. That diminishing marginal utility comes from, it's just because the unit is too small, right? He's like the nth ounce and the nth plus one ounce is going to be the same price. Well, yeah, but he used the example of water and liters, but these liters are a big thing of water. You know, if I'm thirsty, one liter is going to, you know, is going to stop my thirst, quench my thirst, but not one molecule. So the diminishing marginal returns disappear, apparently disappear, if you use a small enough unit. That's just what you have to do with gold. Because if you say um, tons, all right, tons of gold. Or we could even just go bigger, a thousand tons. Then it becomes even easier to see. But a thousand tons, and you keep adding a hundred blocks, uh, bars, whatever, big truck beds full or whatever of a hundred tons of gold. Then you can see that the marginal you, you would start to see the d diminishing marginal returns. You just have to have a big enough thing. So gold doesn't have a a unique property, uh, magical property. It, it does have a quite unique property in different things, but that is not one of them. And what else did I, I said, I had an example of that or let's see. Diminishing marginal returns. Let me find that in my notes on this. Okay. Um, yeah, he said there's a parent with no apparent limit to this property in gold, but I said that doesn't mean there is no limit. It just means there's no apparent limit. Um, also, that markets, this magical property of gold isn't actually present in gold. It's present in the market. The market works to have, to find the right amount of supply coming, to, new supply come to market to meet the demand. You know, if the demand fell up, up through the floor and the price dropped or whatever, there would be less mining happening and the price would write itself back to relatively stable value. So this is a market process. This is not a gold process. And that same process will work with Bitcoin. It definitely will. Another thing I said that, uh, he conflates supply, total supply to circulating supply. He conflates price and value, which value is subjective and created in the minds of men where price is just the marginal clearing price for supply and demand. Okay. Also, I said 21 million is not arbitrary because people always say that, oh, why is it 21 million? Well, it has a lot to do with its uh, block times with having cycles, with um, monetary logical arguments about, uh, you know, diminishing inflation instead of 
increasing inflation or linear inflation. There's monetary logical arguments around that. And big thing is that when you talk, talk about SATs and integer limit limitations in coding language, once you combine all of that, then it comes out where you have to start at 50. And 50 with the halving cycle and all of that and the 10 minute block times comes out to 21 million. So it's not arbitrary. 21 million is the process of many different factors or the result of many different factors. Uh, let's see. Volatility being a feature, not a bug. I said, he says that vol Bitcoin is designed to be volatile. Uh, Pierre later on that I didn't show, he actually does say in there that um, he concedes that point and he doesn't mind that Bitcoin is volatile, but I think it, I am in the camp that Bitcoin will become less volatile with time, mainly because of a higher amount of market cap will not only make price movements a smaller percentage of the price, but also that as hordes you know, come into the circulation supply and then sometimes the circulation supply goes into hordes, that has a modulating effect on a counter balance to demand. So the price can stabilize out as the market cap goes higher. Okay, I am about pooped. This is the longest live stream I've done in a very long time. And I think it's my first weekend live stream. So hope you guys enjoyed. Thanks for hanging out uh, with me. And yeah, that's it. Of course, uh, check out the original video because they go on more to talk more in depth about these issues. And the, the result is Keith wins the, the debate. But I think that's because it was a bad resolution and I even would agree with Keith. So anyway, that's going to do it, guys. Check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Support my work. Share my stuff out there. Appreciate everyone hanging out in the Telegram. T.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. That's going to be it, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. Later.